This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. In your little patriot game, honey, that's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. You've got the world's greatest power, and you team up with thugs, make a fortune on weapons, destruction and drugs. But your flags and boots and uniforms, they start to all smell the same when all sides are killing in the Patriot game. And that's how it's done. And you've got our sons in the crosshairs of horror at the end of your guns. And your national anthems, they start to all smell like shame when all sides are dying. In the Patriot game, it's just the war racket. That's just the war racket. It's just the war racket. It's just the war racket. And war is never, ever holy. It's just a greedy man's dream. And you two-faced crusaders, both sides are obscene. Welcome to episode 43 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, Technology Director of World Beyond War. It's December 2022, our last episode of this year, and I'm here with Maya Garfinkel, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know as a member of our organization's staff just this year, because Maya has been on a sort of tag team with our original Canada organizer, the great activist Rachel Small, who has been on leave and will be back soon. Maya is a community and student organizer based in Montreal, Canada, on unceded Kanekahaka territory, who just finished her BA in political science and geography, urban systems, at McGill University. As an undergraduate, Maya organized at the intersection of the climate and peace movements with Divest McGill, Students for Peace, Disarmament at McGill, and the Divest for Human Rights campaign. They also worked on mobilizations around decolonization, anti-racism, and democratization across North America. Outside of political work, Maya can often be found cooking communally, engaging with multi-faith collaboration, or exploring a new city park. Well, Maya, it's great to have you, and congrats on just getting your degree. Oh, thank you so much. I really am excited to be here. It is a big moment in your life. And I should mention, we're speaking across generations here, you know, which is an <laughs> awesome experience. Um, but, you know, it's it's been a long time since I graduated from college. But what mm. what does getting your degree open up for you? What are you planning for your life? That's a fantastic question. And, you know, as I would say 90% of college students or recent graduates will tell you, I have no idea <laughs> for the most part. I mean, you know, I have some general ideas. I really I really do love living in Montreal. So right now my goals are to keep uh, keep living there as best I can and keep organizing with the people that I've organized with there. I think something that I'm trying to avoid is, you know, the classic uh, bout of isolation that I think a lot of college students feel when they live when they leave that sort of really tight knit environment. So I'm actually really trying to lean into my organizing and um, not just break off those ties that I've been able to form for the last four years um, and, and keep working on that. So I'd love to keep organizing. I don't know what that'll look like in terms of 
how to keep myself afloat other than that. As we both know, organizing is not exactly uh, a money-making endeavor most of the time. (laughs) Um, But I've really been grateful for the connections that I've made Um, during my time. I feel like I've had the privilege of meeting a lot more people and getting outside of my bubble than maybe the average university student. So I'm hoping that that'll carry me forward um, and help me, yeah, explore what it's like to be in the world as a non-student for essentially the first time in my life. (laughs) I gather that Montreal means something to you. That that's, is that like a home base for you? Mm-hmm. Um, for your activism is that is that something you have because I noticed you, your degree is in geography urban system right right so. right right exactly I mean I should say right off the bat that Montreal is not my hometown sadly I'm not cool enough for that um, <laughs> I <laughs> I'm originally from the suburbs of Chicago which is actually where I'm calling in from right now um, well you know family originally from other places but that's where I grew up is the is the area around Chicago um, and Montreal is where I've called home for the last four and a half years. Um, so because of that, it's been really formative. You know, that's where I've been since I was 18. So I haven't really had an adult life anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Um, and that being said, I've definitely experienced quite a niche subsect of Montreal. Um, going to McGill University is kind of a loaded thing because it's an Anglophone university, whereas a large majority of the city is um, not Anglophone. So being in an Anglophone community, it's very, very easy to isolate yourself from the rest of the city, which is kind of maybe context for what I was saying earlier about trying to expand my bubble and get outside of, you know, what they call the McGill bubble or like the Anglophone bubble. Um, But Montreal is a very, very special place. And, you know, specifically in the organizing context has an incredible history of Uh, you know, all types of political organizing, labor organizing, um, environmental organizing, huge anti-capitalist contingent. I always say Montrealers are are ready to go for it at all times. They're ready to throw down, which I really, really appreciate. And I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from, um, which has been, has been really, really uh, special. And I feel very privileged to have been welcomed into that uh, organizing space in Montreal, despite being an outsider, despite not being as bilingual as you know, the city standard is um, people are really excited there and and very helpful. We should mention, I'm not sure if everyone knows the word Anglophone. I know mm, it's sure. um, you know, English, English language speaking mm-hmm. as opposed to Francophone, French. Exactly. And also, Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. another of our associates at World Beyond War is our chapter leader of Cameroon, where Anglophone right. is a term that, you know, is behind actually a, a lot of conflict. Um, right. So, know how serious that is. And later on in this podcast, I do want to talk about the mix of populations in Canada. Um, But before that, you know what, maybe you could put into words what World Beyond War's relationship with Canada is, because World Beyond Mm. War was founded by uh, a few people in the so-called United States of America. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do have a special relationship with Canada. Can you explain that? Oh, for sure. I will do my best. Again, as you mentioned, I'm I'm constantly, you know, trying to fill the big the big boots that were left here for me in this role oh, uh, for the temporary. So by Rachel, exactly. So I will do my best. Um, so as Canada organizer, I'm sort of a point person to connect World Beyond War's work to Canada at large. 
And Canada and its connection with World Beyond War sort of started with, um, I believe, it was the 2018 World Beyond War mm-hmm. Conference, which was uh, which happened in Toronto, which is obviously a huge hub for um, for Canadians. And sort of out of that conference came a lot of new people who were based in Canada, who were interested in World Beyond War but who obviously were relating the ideals of World Beyond War to their own Canadian context. You know, Canada might have a lot of similarities to the U.S., but its militarism is fundamentally different based on lots of different characteristics that it doesn't share with the United States at the end of the day and and characteristics that it does share. So after that conference, um, you know, we sort of, I say we, I wasn't obviously around, but a lot of people at World Beyond War worked really hard to sort of set up some solid chapters um, in Canada. As you may or may not know, World Beyond War is a chapter-based organization, meaning that we really encourage people to set up chapters in their local area, their local city, to work on World Beyond War issues from their local perspective. So that could mean holding events, um, attending protests, signing petitions, basically doing all the things that we do at the national level, but bringing it down to the local level and making it relevant to wherever they may be. So out of that conference, you know, we had a chapter in Toronto, in Vancouver, and now we have actually about six chapters in Canada at large. So that's sort of one side of the relationship is just the chapters and having Canadian chapters. But then at the same time, since then, we, you know, Canada is a massive country with a lot of people who are, you know, I say massive geographically, specifically because there's so many people who are not in an area that makes sense to be connected to a chapter with because they're just, you know, not in a major city or even in some of the bigger cities. It's just really, really hard to to kind of get that community going just based on the population and, and geographic situation. That's, you know, my urban systems brain starts connecting there. <laughs> um, but that being said, uh, our coalitions are really, really important in Canada. Um, and World Beyond War kind of acts as a, as a connector um, between lots of different peace movements happening um, in Canada and other movements. You know, I think we pride ourselves on trying to be as intersectional as possible. So I could go on for a long time, but I would say if you try to remember two things about World Beyond War in Canada, it's coalitions and chapters. Um, those are the really, really big things. And I would say uh, coalitions are, are really big, particularly in my role um, as a national organizer. Let me ask about two things that sort of branch off from this. One yeah. is the urgency of Canada's changing militarism. Mm. Uh, let's start with that, because basically I have sensed from people like you and Rachel and others in Canada that it's not as if Canada's relationship to the world and to the, the military industrial complex has been static. There is a sense that um, you you and your organizer associates are reacting to a wave of increased militarism in Canada. Can you talk about that a little bit? As many people may imagine, Canada puts forth a peacekeeping you know, image to the rest of the world. Uh, for a long time, it's sort of seen itself as a counterpoint to the U.S. or, you know, tried to paint itself as you know, sort of a benign military, if you will, especially in comparison to the U.S. But the reality is, as with many things in Canada, including racism, um, that a lot lies underneath that surface. And I think in the last few years, more specifically, there's been um, 
even more of a push to increase that militarism that exists below the surface and kind of below the consciousness of many Canadians, um, but also outside of that consciousness and really trying to promote Canada as a military power um, in the last few years. And I think that you can attribute a lot of reasons to that, but the easiest way to sort of track that progress is obviously through military spending, because as with many things in the military, you know, we're not privy to a lot of the information under the guise of confidentiality. It can be really difficult to track actually how militaries change over time um, and, you know, what they're actually doing because of that. So we are really big on following the money, which, of course, informs our organizing as we do lots of divestment campaigns continuously following the money and trying to pull that money out. But in regard to your question, outside of the organizing context, um, an example of this would be um, the increased spending on purchases um, on, on um, advanced military technology that Canada hadn't been as interested as in pursuing and advancing at the speed that the United States advances and then spends on its defense budget. Um, so, you know, our most popular example of that um, that is uh, most widely known around Canada is the the fighter jet budget. Um, Canada is very interested in actually in the last day or two, there's been developments on this in purchasing um, F-35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin, which is an American company. Um, and they're interested in purchasing these fighter jets, not because they don't have fighter jets, but because they want the latest model, the most expensive model, the model that the United States has, um, which is obviously extremely detrimental, extremely dangerous. They have, they have nuclear capabilities. And um, again, this isn't to say that this militarism didn't exist. And importantly, Canadian militarism has always existed and is integral to the foundation of the country, as it's also a settler colonial state, um, militarism is very important for Canada to maintain its borders and subjugate its indigenous populations and its continuous like extractivist mission. So it's really important also that when we talk about Canadian militarism, we don't just limit it to, you know, quote unquote, foreign, um, foreign endeavors. It's also an internal endeavor. Um, so that being said, we have seen an increase in spending. We have seen an increase in interest in, you know, being a power that makes itself known within NATO. And I think this is also important in the context of Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, Canada has a border that's um, that's very close to Russia as well. So I think that's also sort of a part of this escalation. Um, anyways, as you can tell, I'm a talker. I could talk for a long time, but I think that uh, I think that that's sort of my perspective on this, and it's really important to consider that within the idea that Canada considers itself a peacemaker. With all these things being said, well, um, first, I'm glad you're a talker. I'm a talker too, and we <laughs> peace activists. Let's keep talking, and let's mm -hmm. talk louder than, than the war makers. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned. Um, Canada's many indigenous populations and mm -hmm. the fact that there is a sense of conflict mm -hmm. between various population groups in Canada. And again, you know, rather than try to stumble to put this into words myself from hearing you, <laughs> um, can you tell me, I, I do want to say that as an observer, it seems to me that Canadian activists are blessed with a, a greater understanding of their mm -hmm. indigenous um, allies and associates than I get from other places around the world. You know, here in New York City, it, it's very hard to find a 
trace of indigenous culture other than a whole lot of place names which show us, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a town called Hopog, which is an Indian mm. name on Long Island, but there are no, no Native Americans in Hopog. It seems to me that Canada has a much more conscious relationship with its populations. Yeah. Oh, goodness. This is actually very related to the subject of my like undergraduate thesis was very much on like Canada's relationship to its indigenous people in comparison to the U.S. actually. Oh, wow. Um, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an, I think it's a really important subject and very much tied to our work. And actually, my conclusion in sort of this idea, in sort of this subject in general is that, you know, just like with Canadian militarism, where the idea of peacemaking is put forth, the idea of reconciliation is put forth um, in in relation to Indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, of course, that is unsurprisingly not so much the truth beneath the surface. So I think it's important to distinguish between um, the Canadian state's relationship to its Indigenous people versus, you know, Canadian organizers' relationship to Indigenous people. Um, I think the Canadian state is like a whole can of worms. There's obviously a really horrific history there and horrific continuous treatment of Indigenous peoples, despite the fact that Canada has a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, you know, lots of work on that, that you are correct, the United States is not on the same page with. Canada. If I can jump in. I yeah, please. You know, be, be, being part of World Beyond War and working yeah. with you, Rachel and Kim Gomery and others, you know, I've learned more. And one thing I've learned is about a legacy of schools. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, when you talk about, I'm not sure if you use the word horrible or whatever word you used, mm-hmm. you know, there may be people listening who have no idea what we're talking yes, about. Yes, please. So we're yes. about population engineering to remove indigenous culture, to destroy, you know, uh, to to make indigenous culture go away, which had horrible effects on human lives. Is that right? Yes, that's that's right. I mean, I think put simply, there was cultural and literal genocide um, of indigenous peoples, and importantly, indigenous peoples across Canada are still in existence uh, despite these efforts to eradicate them from the land that they're on um, or to eradicate their culture and the way that they live. Um, And I say they as like huge broad strokes. There's lots of different nations um, that are very, very different from each other. Um, But a big part of that, as you mentioned, that's been highlighted in the last few years has been the residential school system. Um, Residential school is a very euphemistic word. These were essentially uh, centers for indigenous children to be stripped of their culture and punished for practicing their culture. And as we're seeing in the last few years, specifically, um, there's evidence of unmarked graves, mass unmarked graves, um, which is obviously extremely distressing and um, extremely horrible and something that indigenous people for years have have known that these sites have been sites of you know, murder and, and extermination. Um, but in the last few years, those unmarked graves have, have actually been uncovered. So it's been something that is more uh, mainstream conversation outside of Indigenous communities. Um, and in Montreal, actually, where I'm based, there was um, some important work that I was a part of in the last year, in which actually McGill University, which I attended, was attempting to disturb a site in which we believe there are unmarked graves, um, which was obviously extremely horrific. And uh, myself and other organizers at McGill, other student organizers, worked very hard to um, with the, uh, a group called the Ganistansara, which means Mohawk Mothers in 
Ganawage, um, which is a local indigenous community, um, to try to protect those unmarked graves. So I just, I'm saying that not to, not to like sort of plug that, but just to sort of give you a sense that these efforts are very much still ongoing, um, despite the fact that it, it's, you know, thought of as in the past. And the fact that you and I are talking about it, and probably people who are hearing this don't know about it. This of is a course. story untold. You know, mm-hmm. we know about stories like this from other cultures, but we don't think of this in terms of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's, so this story needs to be revealed. So, yeah. Definitely. These stories, not one story. But, <laughs> but I, did, I did sort of insert that in the middle of yeah, you yeah, yeah. Sort of telling a bigger... Um, we were talking about... Um, indigenous peoples in Canada and sort of what that relationship is like. Right. So of course I I should mention that I'm speaking as a settler. I'm not indigenous. I come from um, Ashkenazi Jewish roots pretty much solely. Um, Interestingly, it doesn't happen too often on this podcast, but we probably come from the same part of the world, but yeah. 100%. I would be shocked if not. (laughs) Um, It's all, it's all the same uh, little group that we come from. Um, But yes, in general, I should mention that just like, positionality that that's sort of where I'm coming to this from um but as I was saying in terms of uh, indigenous uh, relations I think it's very different as I was saying between um the Canadian state uh as opposed to you know with organizers and I think I'll speak more towards you know within or, or within like sort of the settler organizing world um there's obviously a huge diversity as well I think there's a big issue with people paying, you know, lip service and not actually taking their indigenous uh, solidarity into action Um, in terms of organizing. You know, in the U.S., I think you could make the comparison, you know, with white organizers trying to be in solidarity with uh, people of color who are organizing for different issues. But I think it's especially interesting when you talk about indigenous solidarity, because indigenous peoples aren't just I think can't just be put in the category of another group of people of color because there is this sort of power dynamic that's rooted in colonialism in addition to racism. Um, So I think in organizing, there's a lot of really amazing organizers, especially in the climate justice world, who are trying to not only say in words, you know, we're interested in being in solidarity with indigenous peoples, but actually understanding why indigenous sovereignty is critical and necessary to achieve the goals that they're trying to achieve in the first place and why indigenous peoples are actually fighting for the same goals that they are, specifically for climate justice. You used the word dynamic. So tell me about that power dynamic and how are they trying to change it? So in terms of when I say power dynamic, I mean that obviously there's power dynamics in terms of white supremacy and those who are subject to white supremacy. And that's a power dynamic. But and, and of course, there's racism that indigenous people are subject to. And at the same time, there's another layer of not only the race dynamics and white supremacist nature of the situation. But in addition to that, there's also the colonial dynamics of the relationship between um, settlers and people who are descended from settlers and indigenous people. Um, and when I say that, I mean that the Canadian state is, you know, designed to benefit the people who are settling on the lands and designed to harm and exterminate and disenfranchise the indigenous peoples who are on the land. Um, So that manifests itself in a lot of different ways, um, including in terms of uh, militarized violence, including in terms of residential schools. And, you know, in my climate justice work, I think this comes up most clearly, to be honest, because indigenous peoples are 
the keepers of um, the vast majority of the world's biodiversity um, and are historically, um, you know, really, really important to maintaining the the few uh, sites of biodiversity that we still have on the planet that are integral to achieving the climate justice goals that we're trying to desperately, <laughs> desperately hold on to. Um, well, that's such an interesting thing you just said about biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Now, I that about South America, and is that a curse or a blessing? Because for South, for um, like you know, populations in Bolivia and Chile and Peru, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people are exploited for right. that for the biodiversity that's mm-hmm. that that has been a crisis. Right. Um, is uh, tell me about it in terms of Canada when you you know. I mean, when I say biodiversity, I think that I'm using it in maybe a bit too general of terms. I think that biodiversity can also, when I say biodiversity, I also just mean, you know, lands that indigenous peoples are occupying that are important to Canada's extractivist goals and that are also important to, to, um, to indigenous peoples, their traditional land that they've been occupying for thousands of years, many times, um, and, or millennia even. So I'll I'll go deeper into that. I think the most key case of that in Canada that's most widely known to people um, around the country is the case of the Wet'suwet'en in um, British Columbia, which you may have talked about on this podcast already with Rachel Small, who um, actually was able to go out there and help stand in solidarity with those with those folks. Um, so I don't want to repeat if that's already been discussed on the podcast. The Wet'suwet'en people are um, the traditional keepers of what they call the Yinta, um, their land in uh, so-called British Columbia, which is on the west coast of of Canada, all the way on the west coast. That's the same. Pro- it's the same province that Vancouver's in. For those yeah. of you who may know cities rather than provinces, I totally understand that. Um, and the Wet'suwet'en are currently fighting a pipeline. Um, which is a fossil fuel pipeline that's uh, trying to, that that the company TC Energy and the Canadian state are trying to push through their land without their consent, um, and so this is really really horrific, obviously, because it's puts their lands, their water, um, their traditional practices, the way in which they hunt and live um, in great jeopardy. In addition to the fact that the actual construction project also brings uh, harms in and of itself. We know, for example, that when pipeline projects occur on indigenous land, it's more likely to actually bring harm to indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people because there's all these men coming in in these man camps, and it can actually be a danger in and of itself, just the construction, aside from the actual fossil fuels and, and tar sands that that brings through the land and endangers the water. Um, so that's a really important example of indigenous resistance. Um, in the last, I would say almost decade now, they've been directly fighting, um, this pipeline in the courts, um, through popular resistance, through direct action. And when I say direct action, that means, you know, being face to face with the pipeline and face to face with construction. Exactly. And, And they've been faced with extreme repression. Um, And when I say extreme repression, I mean um, complete disregard for their rights to the land and in their resistance, um, being arrested in quite violent and destructive ways, um, being prosecuted in ways that are 
extremely harmful and extremely disturbing, um, especially considering the history that we just mentioned or just kind of skimmed the surface of. So in any case, I think that that's a really prominent example that people know. And across the country, actually, there's been huge efforts to, um, you know, quote unquote, shut down Canada in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en um, because of this militarized violence and because of this repression um, that's been going on for 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 many years now. So that's a really key example. But importantly, there's also examples all over Canada and including the U.S. I was involved in um, standing with Indigenous peoples in what we call northern Minnesota um, in summer 2021. So this is also not a Canada-specific conversation because many Indigenous peoples actually Traditionally, their lands are across the border. You know, these borders are artificial. So it actually is important to connect the two issues because uh, they've been subject to similar things that that relate to both the U.S. and Canada many times. That right there brings me to an interesting thing. I do notice that indigenous communities call themselves nations, and that Mm. presents me with an interesting philosophical (laughs) because I have gone to a lot of mental effort to finally mm. free myself of the belief in nations. I do not mm. believe I live in a place called the United States of America. I think the United States of America, if it is a government, is a broken and corrupt mm. government. I don't mm-hmm. believe in nations. Or am I missing some, because I do want to open my my awareness to what might be meaningful about being right. a nation. I'm not going to find it in the red, white, and blue. You know, <laughs> military power that is the United States of America, but what does nation mm-hmm. mean um, mm-hmm. in Canada? What does, or what does nation mean? That's actually too, too big a question. What, <laughs> That's somebody's mean? dissertation right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Another degree. Um, what mm-hmm. does the word nation mean to you and what do you think it should mean? Wow. Well, I'm going to be the annoying social science person here. Um, And I'll say that off the bat, I think that it's important to distinguish that I don't think I should try to define nationhood for, you know, indigenous peoples, because I think that's a very different relationship to nationhood. Um, But for myself, I think nationhood is a very complicated thing, as it sounds like it is for you as well. Or maybe not, maybe not. For For me, it is complicated as somebody who, you know, I think for a lot of Jews, it's also a complicated thing. I should say, yes. you know, mobile word people, nation. to put it lightly. <laughs> um, and the word nation, sure, cuts both ways. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, nation is something that they, that they that is comfortable to cling to in a world where there's not other identities that, that feel right or for people who have been historically disenfranchised from, you know, the people that they're with, I think it can be comfortable to cling to a nationhood that maybe isn't the United States or isn't Canada. Um, But I think I prefer also, it sounds like you, not to use the word nation in terms of my own uh, relationship. Um, I think that I relate a lot more to, um, you know, my historical background, you know, my ethno-religious background, rather than I do to relate, rather than how much I relate to the Canadian nation or the United States as a nation. Again, I think because in my eyes, they are illegitimate. um, And I see my own ethno-religion or however you want to put it as a much more legitimate thing to cling to and grab community to. And I think at the end of the day, it's about finding a community and a place where you can have 
ties that are based on kin or based on trust or based on whatever else you have in common. And for me, I don't really feel those ties with people who just happen to be in my nation, have to be, happen to be um, in this in this place that we call North America or or United States or, or whatever that may be. So I think that's again maybe what kind of actually relates to what I was speaking about in the beginning of trying to avoid that slump that I've seen so many of my friends go through um, after university. Um, they're told that they have this connection that they're inevitably going to have this connection either with Canada or with, you know, Quebec is kind of seen as its own nation sometimes in the United, in, in Canada, which is uh, the province that Montreal's in. Um, so I think it's really important for, I think, especially a lot of people my age are trying to sort of find who their people are outside of these places that they're told their community is going to be necessarily, that doesn't necessarily come to fruition a lot of the time. Such a fascinating thing to think about. And this does, you know, I did mention earlier that, you know, you and I are different generations. And this brings me back to the fact that when I, I remember when I graduated from college, my so-called nation was so overpowering, meaning my Mm. over overwhelming culture was, Mm. was so overpowering that unlike you, I never said what am I going to do? <laughs> what I was going to do next? I was going to go get a job and make money because right. that's what I was told to do. And right. I did not at at the age you are now. I did not have the awareness you mm. have that you have to define your own path. <laughs> own path. You know, I just like. I have to say it's very Gen Z of me. I'm. Rep- <laughs> I think I'm yes, exemplifying yes. my my generation maybe a bit there. Um, and, we, and we want that because you know I I. I so much, I so much admire the determination you have, because you have so you have so much to do. You have so much work mm. to do. That, you know that you mm-hmm. you already know that the bullshit of what you've been told. <laughs> is not, is not, is not, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. For better or for worse, I think for a lot of people, I think a lot of, I mean, of course I'm operating in a lot of times quite insular organizing worlds that can kind of be, you know, rally each other up in that way. I think there, I should say that there are a lot of people my age who are very comfortable, you know, a lot of people I went to high school with who are like, you know, working for Deloitte now, Goldman yeah, Sachs, yeah. like the whole thing they did their, they did their path and like, you know what, that's their path. Um, but I think at the same time, the internet's been around for the vast majority of my childhood and I've been exposed to a lot of things. And I think like you're saying, there's a, a low tolerance for bullshit just by virtue of the fact that we've been exposed to too many things. There's yes. too much in our brains. And like I said, that's why it's for better or for worse. I think it can be kind of paralyzing sometimes at the same time. So so each their own. I think we'll I think it's important to learn from the lessons of different generations and how different people handled this stage of life, especially as people interested in social justice, whatever that means at a given point. You mentioned, Maya, that um, climate is often the topic of these protests, like the Wet'suwet'en, um, that, or is, if not the topic, that what we're, to- you know, what we're dealing with is a fossil fuel pipeline. Mm-hmm. So along mm-hmm. with the placement of human beings and the disruption of people's lives, there's also the huge, gigantic world, you know, the world depending upon a climate crisis um, issue. So how does that manifest in your work um, as an anti-war activist? Oh, gosh. It's, from my perspective, climate justice is embedded in everything that the peace movement does, whether people are aware of it or not. I think that 
climate justice is imperative for peace and peace is imperative for, for climate justice. Um, so in the case of the Wet'suwet'en that we were just mentioning, um, even though on the surface, many, you know, white people enter that space as climate justice organizers, um, sort of seeing the fact that in order to stop this pipeline and, you know, stop fossil fuel extractivism and fossil fuel dependence, which is, you know, one of the top contributors to the climate crisis, um, they see like, okay, in order to achieve that, I need to be in, in, in solidarity with indigenous peoples, which I think then hopefully, ideally evolves to be, you know, not prioritizing one or the other, because then it kind of creates the issue where after some time, climate justice organizers can, um, you know, not have great relationships if they sort of see that endeavor as sort of a one-two punch, then like throw it away kind of thing. Um, well, becomes like a routine like oh exactly indigenous to protest on sunday exactly and i think that's why it's really important that you know even though this work is imperative to climate justice i think it's important to center indigenous sovereignty and um the militarization that that comes with that and the colonial dynamics that come with that um because at the end of the day when climate justice organizers join these fights they have the luxury or climate justice you know non-Indigenous organizers yeah. join these fights, they have the luxury of leaving whenever right. they want. And Indigenous peoples will continue to be the traditional caretakers of the land that they're on um, and continue to face whatever violence and, and, and you know, whatever the Canadian state subjects them to in, in that place. Um, so I think it's really important to also say that, you know, obviously these issues of Indigenous sovereignty and militarism are super connected to um, climate justice, and they will always be connected to climate justice. And also, it's not a perfect relationship with how organizers in those worlds relate to each other. But in terms of how I think you were asking a bit more about like how climate justice relates to militarism or peace activism, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think what okay. you were pointing to is that if you acknowledge the sovereignty of people right. living in the land where they live, mm -hmm. that means that they have we acknowledge their right to protect themselves. Is that what you're saying? And that that can border on a militaristic frame of mind? When you Are you using the word militarism in that sense? Oh, As, that's interesting, actually. I mean, I was, I was yeah. Yeah, what, I, I wasn't actually, when I say militarism in the case of Indigenous sovereignty, I'm talking about the way in which the Canadian state weaponizes its military and its police to, you know, stop indigenous resistance to pipelines and to protect its own pipelines. Well, the militarism it's, of using police. Exactly, exactly. And and I think it's also important because if you consider that indigenous peoples or indigenous nations in Canada are their own sovereign nations, then you can kind of understand how through if you're thinking through the eyes of the Canadian state, that's a threat to you as a sovereign nation as Canada. You know, like if you're thinking nation to nation, I'm Justin Trudeau. I'm trying to defend my my Canadian state and somebody else within my state is calling themselves a sovereign nation that isn't subject to my laws. Then the military traditionally is used to defend the state's that's borders. Right. That's right. Um, and so that's why it's really important that when we say Canadian militarism, you know, obviously Canadian, maybe not obviously Canadian troops were used you know, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, all these places that the U.S., the, the, like the American military was also in. Um, but Canadian military, as with American military as well, 
was also used to quote unquote defend its borders illegitimate borders, I would say, within the United States when that nationhood is is threatened. And when you have not only indigenous peoples, but also, you know, many settlers in Canada standing in solidarity and also saying, you know, these guys are legit. Like, like we fully buy that you're not, that you don't have any jurisdiction like in their land. And that's like really threatening to the Canadian state when they see thousands of people standing up and not buying into it. Because as we're saying, you know, if we don't really buy the whole nation thing, then it sort of starts to fall apart if you have enough people. I mean, I think that's the sort of ultimate danger and maybe the ultimate goal of sort of decolonization in my mind is sort of like delegitimizing these sort of made up things that end up harming um, indigenous peoples. But anyways, I think hopefully that helps sort of illuminate how I view the role of militarism in uh, subduing indigenous resistance. Um, it's really critical. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you clarified that. You know, I, I was asking to make sure I understood because all of these words cut multiple ways. Yeah. You know? Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, my gosh. Yes. I'm glad you did. In the fact that you're describing a showdown over an oil pipeline in right. the west of so-called Canada. Right. Um, in my understanding of the disaster going on in Ukraine right now, right. Um, a lot of that war between Russia and Ukraine is over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, Europe, in Europe, we see a much more advanced showdown over a pipeline. Right. So mm -hmm. I don't it's a trivial fact that no 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 it's really yeah. not and it's really just the same it's well first of all it's it, you know i'm kind of talking about three things that are sort of yeah. integral well, to know, my we're all overflowing with stuff to talk about here. exactly yeah. but I, I mean in terms of sort of pillars that ground my work i think right now that is you know climate justice peace work and decolonizing work or you know standing in, in solidarity with indigenous peoples um, and I think as we're talking, it's very clear, at least to me, that all those things are integral to one another. Because, I mean, you could just take one example, you know, when we reduce fossil fuel dependency, we reduce the the incentive for these kinds of endeavors. Because if we don't theoretically need there to be as many, as much fossil fuels as we currently use, then we don't have the need to defend it um, in the way that we do. But at the same time, we know that military can use, be used for a lot of different things. And so we need to decrease militarization. We need to demilitarize and then so on and so forth. And it's all, it's all super connected. And I think it's really important that you brought up Ukraine and Russia, because as we're saying, that's sort of not only an important issue in and of itself, but also in Canada, it's used as an excuse also to keep increasing these these systems of violence rather than decreasing them, um, which really, as World Beyond War, we're taking an abolitionist perspective. And so for us, the horizon that we're trying to work towards is not necessarily, is not, you know, increasing these things to make us safer or increasing the military to make us safer. It's decreasing the military to make us safer. Um, right. Yes. So. <laughs> disappearing the military yes <laughs> disappearing thank you for that clarification no. not decreasing disappearing <laughs> we don't buy it at all one more thought um this is a sort of funny thing inside world beyond war um conversation one of our board members is, is named kuhan who, mm, um, who right. lives in hawaii and did a great podcast episode with us um mm -hmm. She's very, I would say, aware of indigenous culture. And she right. said that her friend, the, the great Canadian songwriter and rock star, Buffy St. Marie, who I love, mm. who 
said she would love to invite invite her to check out World Beyond War, but yeah. our website, I think I'm phrasing Kuhan, right? Our website just really lacks any sense of indigenous anything. Mm. I'm not paraphrasing because as the I am the website designer. Sure, here. sure, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah. Others, but I'm like, well, you're right. Our website is like <laughs> background and black text and it's very, you know, square and, you know, and I think that is because it, it's efficient. We're trying right. to get a message out all over the world. But, you know, it did make me think, and I, by the way, the reason I'm say, saying this to you, my, is that he <laughs> is a great Canadian activist. Right, she, right, right, right. You know, somebody I've been aware of her music for a long time. But um, I just did want to mention that another thing is that in prep for this podcast, I asked you, Maya, if you listen to any podcast, and you turned me on to three podcasts, two of them from Canada, we should give them a shout out. Um, sure. I'll put all the podcasts in the show notes, but perfect. When when I listened, I immediately thought, "Oh, damn, they have better anarchist podcasts in Canada than in the United States." You know, they're really great podcasts here, but mm. these podcasts are very lively, mm-hmm. very and I definitely sensed in the three I listened to, two of which emerged from Canada, and all three an appreciation of indigenous culture that made right. me say Oh, I I sort of see what Kuhan was saying. Like, mm. you know, we need to recognize indigenous culture in everything we do, because it's it's it needs to be a part of everything we do. One hundred percent. And I think it's important to mention not just recognizing indigenous culture, but also recognizing our own relationship to settler colonialism. Just like how it's important for, I keep making this comparison because I think it's important, I think it's easier or more accessible for Americans, but I think just like how in the U.S., you know, where a lot of white people, white organizers are trying to examine their relationship and how they benefit from white supremacy, I think in the same vein, it's important to consider your own, you know, relationship to settler colonialism. And I think that's kind of, you know, for example, why I mentioned where I grew up and, you know, my background, because I think that's sort of important first steps to you know, talking about how you benefit and and going from there to make it actionable. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a great segue for me to ask, how did you become who you are? And I think who you (laughs) are is wonderful. So I mean that. Oh, thank you. How did you become? (laughs) How did you become who you are? (laughs) How did you, you, unlike me, go to college knowing you are? (laughs) things that were relevant to the world instead of how to make a living um Mm. all of that (laughs) start at the beginning (laughs) oh gosh oh gosh um well I think that first of all I should mention that I grew up in the Chicago area like I said very Ashkenazi Jewish background which is for those of you don't know it's like very European Jewish background um diaspora but actually I was born in Israel actually my family's Israeli um, on my dad's side. So I grew up, you know, part of the time, you know, being exposed to what that means, which is a whole other can of worms I could get into. Um, and on the other side, being exposed to very much, uh, you know, diaspora Jewish culture, um, which of course, you know, maybe to a listener, it's not super familiar. It might not seem super relevant, but maybe to any Jews or people who are familiar with Jewish culture, you kind of see how that might be relevant. Um, specifically with, uh, you know, Jewish history in relationship to violence. I'm talking, you know, outside of Israel and what that means, which is obviously important to my upbringing as well, being in close to close proximity 
um, to, you know, I would say more militarized violence and the effects of war than maybe your average white North American might be. Um, and I should say on my dad's side as well, that my dad's parents are actually Holocaust survivors. Um, and so I think that that also really influenced sort of my exposure to violence as a child and what that means. I was always a very sensitive kid. Survivors from where? Uh, they're from Poland originally. Did they arrive in Israel as part of the original arrival of many Holocaust survivors? Yes, so they, 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 were, they were actually brought, so they were both teenagers during the Holocaust um, and they were both survivors of camps. Um, yeah. And yeah, and, and one of, so my grandfather was actually orphaned um, as a result and didn't have really any family except for a brother. Um, and so he was brought in the same sort of group as my grandmother who did have a mother, but you know, at that time, if you didn't have her father, you were kind of, you know, stranded in a way. Um, mm -hmm. And so they were brought uh, by, I believe it was the Red Cross. Um, they were kids, so they didn't really have a say in the situation um, as as orphans, basically, um, to Israel uh, before 1948. Um, so that's a whole other part of my identity in terms of like reconciling with what that means. Um, my family being a part of two very violent settler colonial projects and like what that means for my own um, proximity to this work. Um, so that's their sort of relationship, you know, Poland to Sweden, I think was sort of a stop in between where the Red Cross took them um, to sort of like, you know, help bring them back to health um, after after that. Um, and then, and then Israel a little bit before 1948. I don't remember the exact year. And then they've been I mean, there ever since. But isn't it amazing that our heritage encompasses both being refugees, being displaced, right. being, becoming homeless due to war, and also being associated with the violent settler right. colonial movement? You know, mm -hmm. so okay. Yeah. Go on. I think so that, I know it's it's really. I mean, you're asking how I became who I am. Yeah. I think that that's really important. Right. I think that. Um, I think that, you know, I think that I've had the perspectives of those experiences really inform how I go about this work, or at least I like to think so. Um, and not to say that I had a childhood that really encompassed that in a super nuanced way, you know, um, you know, well, I think that my father did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he grew up that in a community of pretty much only Holocaust survivors and their families. Um, and so I think that really informed his perception of, you know, what it means to have gone through such violence and how does one react and, and become resilient and um, not only become resilient, but like address the, the powers that created that violence in the first place that inflicted that violence. Um, and so I think for me, you know, like I was saying before, I was always a very like sensitive kid. <laughs> I was always very like disturbed by all these things that were sort of normalized, especially in the context of Israel. I think, you know, I was exposed to militarized violence, maybe more than your average North American, but I also had an outsider perspective than your like typical Israeli kid, if that makes sense. So things that were normal for like kids that I was hanging out with in Israel weren't necessarily normal for me, you know, but at the same time, sort of both ways, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, in what way were you different then? Do you just mean because you're a different person or were you different in terms of your origin? Because um, No, not so much origin. I think I mean, you know, for example, in Israel, um, 
you know, many Israelis carry around like guns, for example. Mm. Okay. Um, and like that kind of thing, I would be more privy to that. And I'd be like, why is that, you know, why is our camp counselor holding a gun? You know, like that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Israeli kids, that's just kind of normal, like to see people walking around with really heavy weaponry. Yeah. Um, right. and so like, that's just a really clear example of something that I was maybe more tuned into. Um, but then, you know, when I come back to North America, which is like where I grew up and we talk about conflict, um, in which the U S is a part of, I feel like I have a little bit more of a sense again, of course, maybe a little bit more than your average white North American, um, of what it feels to be really close, even geographic proximity to violence, um, to militarized violence. Of course, as an Israeli, very different experience than other people, like than like Palestinians engaged in the conflict in terms of proximity. Again, I didn't grow up most of my childhood in Israel, so I still had, you know, avoided a lot of that trauma that comes with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, even feeling like I have family members in danger or that I've had family members in danger sort of makes it more real. I think a lot of times in the U.S. and Canada, war can feel like a fake little chess game or right. like a real, like just a, this unreal oh, thing. Oh. It's, it's glorified. It's it's just completely mythologized as we talk all all the time about in, in World Beyond War. And I think that, um, you know, again, in comparison to, to maybe the standard person in my demographic, I was exposed a little bit more to just the realities, just my, uh, <laughs> the way that I was just repelled by it <laughs> um, from the beginning. Um, and then of course, not just repelled, but I, I was, I did grow up with, you know, some decently strong social justice values. Um, and my parents, I, I'm lucky enough that they encouraged me to get involved um, not super involved. I wasn't super involved as a kid, but at least be engaged in my community, which I think is really the the root of all good organizing is to be just engaged with the people around you. Um, so I, I feel lucky that I was able to then connect those experiences and those roots um, with the issues going around me. You know, I, I grew up in an era of school shootings here in the United States. So that was mm -hmm. sort of an entry point. Um, in addition to climate justice of, you know, getting engaged with talk about like the Florida school shooting. Yeah. You know, you were in high school, I guess. Yeah, I, I was a senior yeah. when Parkland happened in Florida. And I actually, you know, that was actually a really important organizing moment for me. Obviously horrific, but also it was, it's a very Jewish community where that happened in Parkland, Florida. Mm -hmm. I keep mentioning Judaism. I feel like maybe for the non-Jews listening, they're like, why is this all connected? <laughs> but it does connect for me because it, it's allowed me to see myself a bit more in in that. And, and, and I ended up helping to lead a walkout at my own school when that was, a, you know, something that was happening across the country. And that was definitely a moment for me of feeling like, it, there's a whole thing that happened there with the walkout, but um, basically our school tried to like, you know, funnel us somewhere and nobody was really doing anything. And they were like, you can walk out, but like, yeah, do what you want kind of thing. But like, we're not actually going to like lead anything. And so nobody was really doing anything. We walked out and like, nobody really knew what to do. And I ended up with a friend of mine, you know, trying to pull up the names and, you know, have a moment of silence and, and these wow. things that like, and the names you're saying. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, again, not to toot my own horn, but just sort of like, I think a lot of this comes back to the, you know, the loss of innocence moments where you realize that adults aren't going to tell you what to do. And um, for people like me and maybe like you at one point or 
in your life where you wanted to be an anti-war activist. Right. Didn't quite know what steps to take or what yeah. door to knock on. Yeah. And you found yourself by being at this walkout and saying, hmm, nobody's doing anything. Nobody's <laughs> I better become a leader. And yeah. that's how you become a leader is you put yourself in a situation where where things are happening. And then right. when you spot that a need for leadership is needed, yeah. you jump in. And so you're giving advice to others. And that's what this is about. Mm. So you're not at all tooting your own horn. You're you're showing other people the map, you know. Mm. And you you were able to come into World Beyond War and be useful from day one. Mm. Which means you brought something before you were at the <laughs> war, and I hope other people think about, you know, what can I bring to an organization? What do I know how to do? Mm. You know, do I know how to be a leader? So that's why you're definitely mm. not to horn. Your your this podcast isn't about anti-war. <laughs> it's about yeah. join us. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's super important. I really, yeah. I really do sincerely believe that everyone has a place in the anti-war movement, in the climate justice movement, in in all these social justice movements. And they just need to find, everyone just can find their own point of entry, you know, relating it to how it relates to you. Everyone can relate to these issues in one way or another, regardless of your position. Everyone's engaged in it. So everyone has a relationship. And I think that that's really, really an, a great, a great thing that you extracted from what I was saying um, is that this isn't some, you know, secret society that only the chosen few know how to do this. Um, if you're a part of a community, then you can organize that community um, in yes. one way or another. Yes. And being an organizer is a thing. It's a path. Yeah. You can make that your path in life. <laughs> to Completely. Be an and, and also... And also there's a lot of people that historically have been doing the work of organizers and just not called it organizing, you know, like I think that I like to point to faith leaders, you know, you can think of, you know, black faith leaders in the United States that have done organizing work for decades, like to support their community. And it's not called political organizing maybe all the time, but it is organizing or just people who support each other in different ways. And, you know, a lot of people have those skills and don't think about it in political terms, but it is political and it can be as political as you want it to be, which I think is important as well. So, wow. Well, um, this leads to a next question. Um, <laughs> I'll answer it for myself before asking yeah. you, which is about the role of faith. Now, mm. it's funny that, you know, it is funny that you mentioned you keep talking about Judaism. I think that's cool because this is episode 43. Yeah. And I've talked to many different types of people, but this yeah. is the first time I've talked to somebody where I acknowledge the fact that I am of Jewish heritage as mm. well, and that this is this is a, a background that leads us to anti-war activism because mm. of particular crises that, that we've been aware of. So mm -hmm. now I want to, I, I should say, I am the variety of uh, American Jew who is Buddhist. Yeah. Um, I am very much a Buddhist. Buddhism has informed my life. I, I can't tell if I would be an anti-war activist if I didn't become a Buddhist when mm -hmm. I was a teenager, but I certainly know I wouldn't be who I am. So yeah. that's the role faith has in me. Um, it is my religion. Um, I take it very seriously. Yeah. What is the role of religion in your life? <laughs> that's a great question. And I do think it's important to talk about faith in anti-war spaces because so many people are people of faith. Um, and I think it's important that it isn't a taboo subject or something people feel like they have to hide. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, 
for me, I think I'm still grappling a lot with what my faith means to me. I think that my faith has informed my work, as I've mentioned before, because my faith has been a really big part of my heritage. I think for a lot of people, their faith maybe doesn't as much inform their heritage, but I think for a lot of Jews, because at least I consider it to be an ethno-religion, um, it's really informed my my perspective in that way. Um, additionally, I think faith has really informed my piecework as I've been able to find um, Jewish anti-war and social justice activists um, in uh, in Canada and in Montreal specifically, there's an incredible Jewish community of leftist people doing really important social justice work and being able to connect um, Jewish values and sort of read things through a social justice lens has been really important to me and helped me reframe things that maybe I was taught as a kid that don't really align with my worldview and help see those things. I'm talking very broadly through a Jewish lens, but I'm talking like specifically, for example, um, queer identity in Judaism is really important. And there's a lot of um, interpretations of Jewish law and Judaism that, uh, you know, engage in queer identity and, and, you know, LGBTQ issues in a way that, you know, Christian, uh, Christian law doesn't in the same way. Um, and so for me, engaging in my own, you know, identity as a queer person through a Jewish lens has been really important. And of course, LGBTQ issues are, are really important as social justice issues as well. It also connects mm -hmm. to militarism in lots of ways. So I think that that's one example of like the way in which my faith is um, important to me as an organizer. It's a source of community and it's also a source of um, knowledge and comfort and just sort of rootedness, if that's a, if that's a word that I can use. <laughs> that's more of a pronounced answer actually than I was expecting. And you know, mm. even though work together i've had inklings of this like when a holiday came up and you you mentioned that you were yeah. celebrating and i'm like oh well my family's angry at me because i wouldn't be celebrating <laughs> anyway but um i didn't know that about you and that is something that among anti-war activists you'll obviously find a large variety of yeah many christians obviously many Muslims, for sure um and and many jews and also many agnostics and atheists yeah i do want to throw in one more controversial Please. thing so here in new york city uh, you know so-called new york city brooklyn um i live in a town called flatbush where i'm surrounded by two very intense orthodox jewish communities mm -hmm. and i love to walk around brooklyn I, you can sure. stop me walk with my headphones on listening to podcasts all the time mm -hmm. so i i really observe these communities and i have friends who are you know, th these types of Orthodox um, Jewish communities, but they are very, very gender rigid. Yes. I mean, say queer, the word queer in these communities, I'm yeah. not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not inside these communities. But mm -hmm. is it possible to reconcile a religion as traditionally gender rigid? Because <laughs> if so, tell me. Oh my gosh, 100%. Well, I think it's important to say that that is 100% the truth, what you just said, in terms of the fact that, of course, as with all religions, there's a huge diversity within the Jewish community. And I would say that still, even though there are a lot of people who are open to, um, you know, gender nonconformity and queerness um, in the Jewish community, there's also a lot of people that aren't. And that that fact is rooted in their tradition and rooted in, you know, traditional gender roles and um, like what the, you know, Jewish texts tell us about gender. Um, and at the same time, um, while 
you know, this could turn into a Jewish text podcast very quickly. So I'm trying not to diverge in that. But while that's the case, there also are a lot of Jewish queer scholars um, who see evidence of gender nonconformity and, you know, ancient roots of queerness in in Jewish texts, um, whether that means identifying sort of genders, you know, between male and female in in ancient texts, um, and identifying sort of, you know, practices of queerness in in ancient Jewish texts, you can sort of think of it like a historical document in that way, in addition to a spiritual document. But it obviously, you know, religious texts are some of the oldest texts that we have. And if we analyze them in a historical way, we can sort of use it as evidence that, you know, queerness and gender nonconformity have have always existed. And people have always grappled with these issues, even if traditionally gender conformity is a part of many religious um, religious practices. We can attribute that to a lot of things also that maybe aren't integral to the Jewish faith, but are integral to the world around Jews and how Jews have been shaped over time. Um, yeah. Not that like, I'm a historian, but yeah, that's my understanding. With having large families, you know, the birth. Yeah, rate. exactly, exactly. It's like also gen. Helps exactly, yeah. exactly. Gender conformity definitely does help you help you have ten children if that's what you want to do. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's really and you know I have a lot of friends that you know were a part of you know more observant communities and now aren't for reasons related to gender and queerness um, and have still been able to hold on to their Jewish practices in really 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 beautiful ways. Um, so I think that's sort of the the community that I hope to keep finding myself in is um, is is made up of those types of people who who really value that part of their identity and their practice and also are are making it their own and also sticking to their roots in a really beautiful way. Very cool. Yeah. So glad I asked. I want to ask you two more things. Please. One thing is, even though I'm definitely going to throw in a Buffy St. Marie song on this podcast, <laughs> I do like the idea of, you know, bringing people like her into the world beyond the yeah. world. I also would like to ask if you have a song to suggest that mm. represents any of the things we're talking about. I, you know, <laughs> All right. Do. I'll send you something good. How's that? Okay. And then my last thing is, um, you know, you've spent not quite a year with World Beyond War. I, I know you'll be part of our world going forward. Do you have anything you want to say about your time at World Beyond War? Mm, what did you yeah. experience? How has it changed you? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Well, first of all, I should say that I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this this team and, and the World Beyond War community. I truly could not have asked for a better um, you know, real big kid job <laughs> right out of school in that sort of way. And I think that I've learned so much about what it means to be an intergenerational and national organizer um, through World Beyond War. As many people listening to this probably know, World Beyond War is a very ambitious organization and we take on a lot. And so I've learned what it means to really interact with people from a huge range of peace, peace work perspectives. And I've learned so much from that, um, including working with people who really disagree with me, or maybe who I really disagree with them. Um, Like I, like I sort of started this off with, you know, we work in a lot of coalitions with a lot of different people. So I've really gained a lot of confidence with those skills. And I hope added some perspectives that maybe 
um, aren't as popular or aren't as common in the peace in the peace world, especially when it comes to sort of intergenerational activism. I love learning from people of different social justice generations than myself, and I hope that that feeling is mutual, especially in organizing spaces, um, because that's the only way that we can really move forward. So World Beyond War has really given me that gift of access into those worlds that I think um, are oftentimes hard. As we mentioned, even for people who are experienced organizers, a lot of times organizing can feel like a a club that isn't for you. Um, so World Beyond mm-hmm. War has really made me feel like, um, you know, any peace, any peace, pro-peace world is a world that, that I can enter. And I hope that other people feel the same way as well. Wow. That says so much. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you really have a lot of insights to share. You are a talker, as you said. And <laughs> you say a lot of original things that, mm. that it's not for everyone and that many people have to try a few things out before they find the organization that they resonate with. Yeah. Um, and there, but it's out there. That's the important thing, you know, or, impor- or to find your own or to yeah. be a wolf who doesn't join an organization, but yeah. no matter what, it's been so great to have you part of this and I'm so glad. part of the world beyond war community. It's my pleasure. It really is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's a quiet night on main street where the poison water runs. It'll never be the same street when the time appointed comes. It's talked about in whispers, nothing certain, only rumor and clue. But the violent sheet of silence will be shattered when the train comes through. We may only be subordinates, but we hear everything. All your closed-door conversations, we're always listening. We sense frequencies you'd never hear or think to pay attention to. And we can tell what's on its way here long before the train comes through. The real news comes in flashes here and there among the noise. Borderland insurgent clashes with the local army boys Who think they've got a handle on the territory for at least a year or two It'll be too late to get out of the way by the time the train comes through so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.